It's kind of an awkward sermon to start tonight because we're going to go and we're going to look at a character in Scripture who has an awful life. And it's the character of Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. And so I wanted to have a big, warm, fun, interesting introduction, but it seems so inappropriate because this is a woman who, who really does suffer. But when I came to Grace Community Church, um, there were a few people who are in this room who were extremely helpful to me because kind of like the guy who sent the email earlier, I'd never sent an email, but I needed help to find a good wife. And I found the help. Corey Williams, he's sitting over there. He was very instrumental. Austin and Merrily, very instrumental. They uh, sat me and my wife, Sarah, down and did premarital with us. And they uh, helped me and helped her to realize that we were so different in the worlds that we came from. And Corey will remember because me and him shared a room. And I would come home at night after uh, taking Sarah on a date. And it would have all gone amazing. We would have had a good time. We would have had some nice food. It would have all been very affordable. And I was happy with that. And then at the end of the night, I would have driven up to where her apartment was. And I would have, you know, of course, with chivalry, gone and opened the door to let her out. And all of a sudden, tears would appear. I didn't know what to do with that. I grew up in a home of all boys. We, 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 we didn't know what to do with crying girls. And as the tears would subside, Sarah would start to talk about weird things. Lots of weird things. But most often attached to her past and the brokenness of the home that she grew up in. And I would come home, and Corey would sit in a, in a bed, a separate bed, by the way, beside me. <laughs> and I'd be like, I don't know what happened tonight. And we would just talk. And he, was, he would pray for me, good, good friend, good discipleship. And, uh, and eventually, you know, things worked out enough that me and Sarah could get married. But do you know what the problem was, if you can call it a problem? I grew up in a home where my mom and dad, they weren't perfect, but they loved each other. And they were committed to working through things. I never had a moment in my life where I thought my dad would hit my mom or mistreat her in any way. But Sarah's home was very, very different. And that had a huge effect. And for me, just getting to know Sarah was a real moment of realization. I thought everybody had a steady home like I had. I knew theoretically they didn't, but I kind of assumed if I was to come into a room like this, that just about everybody here would generally, there'll be in a couple of exceptions, but generally have grown up in a safe home where they were cared for, and mum and dad you know, looked after each other. And being with Sarah and hearing of her past made it very, very clear that wasn't normal. I googled this afternoon, 
and I found some horrifying statistics. You know, on average, 20 people per minute in the United States are physically abused by an intimate partner. That's over 10 million in the United States a year. The World Health Organization, it uh, has statistics that are talking about the world at large, and they say that one in three women in the course of their life have been subject to physical or sexual violence. God made an absolutely amazing world. And he, he crafted the man and the woman with great personal involvement, great care, great intimacy. He, he had, he had uh, love, he had intention, he had design in every aspect of them. And he made for them a wonderful and good world. But sin has ruined that and broken that. And sadly, there's so many people in our world, and I'm assuming tonight there are people in this room. And so even as we talk about this stuff, I want to be aware that some of the things that we talk about in Hagar may be something that you relate to in a a painful way. And I want to remind you that there are good and godly people here. Ruth's testimony was so lovely, wasn't it? That, that there were, she found people who loved her and people who cared for her and were kind to her. And that had a massive effect on her. I want you to know there are people here who are, who are just like that. And if you're someone who, as we talk tonight, has ever experienced any of this type of pain, I want you to know there are people here who can show love and kindness to you and especially remind you that there is a God who helps the helpless. And there's a God who hates that, that cruelty, and that ugliness, and that mistreatment more than you could ever think or imagine. And a God who loves people who through maybe abuse that they have experienced, he, he is able to love and to care for and to restore them. And, and, and that's the glory of, of the God of Scripture. And really what we have tonight is a case study of, of a lady who found herself in an awful circumstance and was mistreated. And this is, you know, spoiler alert, something we'll talk about. Mistreated not just by nasty sinners in this world, but mistreated by the very people who were the covenant people of God and and abused by them. And yet I hope through the course of our study, you'll be able to see that, that, that God still could be engaged and, and mean something that shifted the mindset of this wonderful lady, Hagar, in Genesis chapter 16. Now, in very Andrew Curry fashion, before we ever get to Genesis, I want to go to Exodus. And I want to remind you of that story, and you'll see why in a moment, I hope. Do you remember how the story of Exodus begins? The story of Exodus is this story of a, a people, the Israelites, and they've been in Egypt 
Uh, They've gone down and they've settled there and God is going to grow them as a nation. But in the course of Exodus chapter 1, lots of nasty things take place. There's a, a king, a pharaoh who comes to the throne who did not know Joseph. And he begins this uh, campaign of oppression against the people of God, against the Israelites. And, and he uh, insists on pressing against them. If you uh, have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1 verse 11 says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And then we read just a little bit later in verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so this nasty man, Pharaoh, is is oppressing the Israelites and making life awful for them, enslaving them. And then he steps up his game and becomes even worse in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom whom was named Sephora, the other Purah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and and see them on the burstal, if it is a son, you shall kill him. He comes up with this plan to, to wipe out the baby boys in a secret, devious way using the midwives. And when that, that doesn't work, he does something else in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. He issues this law of out-and-out genocide. Do you feel the heat and hatred of Pharaoh towards the Israelite people? Their backs are against the wall. And then when you go to the end of Exodus chapter 2, you get a sense of the anguish in their hearts. It says in verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel And God knew. Think of those words, especially in verse 25. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. All the heat and oppression and aggression that was coming in their direction, the Lord understood. The Lord was aware. And so what comes next is God breaks into the scene and God fights for his people and tends signs and wonders, the plagues in Egypt, and he decimates the Egyptians and he brings his people out and he, he takes them to the, the, the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world at the time, come pursuing after them and it looks like they're going to squash them just as they're beginning their journey, but no, because God is there. And God sees and God knows and God fights for his people. 
and he delivers the Israelites and he squashes and crushes the Egyptian army. He decimates them. And then because he's not like Pharaoh, he's God and he's kind and he provides. He gives them water in the wilderness. He gives them quail. He gives them manna. He looks after them. In fact, he's, he's a good king and he, he gives them a law there at Mount Sinai to rule over and to protect and to guide the people. And he's even better than that because he gives instructions as well to build a tabernacle. This, this king of kings and lord of lords, he wants to live amongst the people. And he stays with them for 40 years. And for 40 years through his prophet Moses, he teaches the people. And he gives instruction to them. And he interacts with them in the wilderness. And then this nation, this conglomerate, this massive group of people. They come and they assemble on the plains of Moab. And they're looking out to the promised land that God had said he would give to them. And soon they're going to cross over and go in. But before they do, Moses settles everybody down. I imagine they sit because you just sat. That's what we like to do to listen. Maybe they stand. I don't know. But but they're all there in the plains of Moab. And the preacher gets up, Moses. And he reads for the very first time the book of Genesis. The first ears that hear these words are those Israelites who've been delivered from oppression and slavery and provided for by the God who saw them and the God who knew. And they listen to this glorious story of of creation, this glorious story of the early stages of mankind. They they listen to all of this. But uh, what takes them by surprise is that in between the two mountaintops for the Israelite people, chapter 15 and chapter 17, that are both about the wonderful promises God has made to them to grow them, to bless them, to to, uh, make them a blessing to the nations to care for them and to be their God right in between of those between those two mountain peaks in the Genesis story comes this one that we're going to study tonight the, the story of a slave girl in fact the story of a, an Egyptian slave girl who was cruelly treated and yet given promises very similar to theirs about deliverance that would come by God's hand. And and from this story of such an unlikely person, these Israelites, these now freed slaves, would gain hope that whatever hostility would come against them in the future as they went into the promised land, God would be their God, the God who saw them and the God who knew. So I want you to imagine you're, you know, you've got your sandals on. You're those Israelites listening to this story for the first time. You've been, you've been freed from Egypt God's strength and provision has been so clearly on display 
And we've been listening to the story so far. And then we come to hear about this woman, Hagar. A woman most likely who, uh, if we think of the story of her life, really becomes part of Abraham's uh, group in Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12, there's a story where Abraham and, or he's Abraham at that point, Abraham and Sarai, they, they, they go to Egypt because there's a famine and they want to be protected. And while he's there, he tells Sarai, look, tell everybody you're my sister. And there's this lie that he sets in motion and it causes all this trouble. And yet God intervenes in chapter 12 and God overrules. And through that overruling, Abraham comes out. He's, he's still okay. He still has Sarai as his wife, but he also comes out with a big bunch of possessions, including, it says, slaves, male slaves and female slaves. Most likely that's when Hagar enters the scene. And Hagar comes in as one of these kind of possessions of Abraham and Sarai that have been, become theirs through this, really, an act of sin, through their lying, through a low point in their life. She becomes theirs. Now let's read chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly. With her, and she fled from her. The angel of the notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the angel of Yahweh found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of Yahweh also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. 
And the angel of Yahweh said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord Yahweh has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Birlaharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So again, remember the people who first heard this story. That massive multitude of Israelites now free from slavery in Egypt, sitting on the plains of Moab, listening to Genesis being read to them. They love Genesis 15. They love Genesis chapter 17. They love to hear about themselves. Who doesn't like to hear about themselves? But in between is this depressing story about an Egyptian slave girl he was noticed by God. As we think about maybe a few lessons to tease out of this particular biography, this particular story, the first thing I want you to see tonight, and it's maybe a hard lesson for us to begin with, is what it declared to those Israelites in the plains of Moab about their forefathers. And this is our point, that God's people are often themselves extremely sinful. God's people themselves are often extremely sinful. We, we think that some, often we think that effective Christians, they are perfect. They're, they're not quite sinless, we never say that, but, but they're close. And in the Israelites, to the Israelites, very few in their Old Testament, their, their revelation were better and held in higher regard than Abraham and Sarah. They, they were the best of the best in everybody's mind. And yet here, the text declares that they suffer from exactly the same problem that you suffer from. And the other corrupt Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Philistines, all those other people groups, they suffer from the same problem, and it's the problem of sin. Israel had just been delivered from wicked Pharaoh, the man who had enslaved them and oppressed them and mistreated them. And now Israel's listening to a story where their great-great-great-granddaddy, great-great-grandmother, treated others, in fact, treated an Egyptian, in just a, as much a miserable way. God's people sometimes can behave like demons. And in part, that's what we're seeing here. At best, you can see they're not acting uh, right. 
And there's a dilemma that, that spurs God's people to sin in such a grievous way here. Look at verse 1. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now, this is not... It's true. That's exactly what it says. And, and, and that revelation from above or below <laughs> is one that has already appeared many times in Genesis. In fact, the very first time Sarai is introduced is at the end of chapter 11. And she's introduced as Sarai, the one who is barren. And, and, and it's said often about her, she has no children and this distinguishes her. This is repeated many, many times, and it's, it's hard for her. Look at verse 2. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And she, she, she's struggling here with the pain of waiting. God had said he would give children, but she can't wait any longer. She's wanted this for so long, and it hasn't come yet. And it's been going on and on and on. And so often, sin begins with that type of a dilemma. There's something that we want. There's something that we long for. It may even be, like it was for Sarai, something good. She just wanted a baby. That's not a bad thing. Sometimes babies can be hard work, but they're, they're good. She wanted a good thing. But so wicked is the human heart that it can take something good and it can grab so tightly a hunger for it that it, it produces in us a, a fertilizer for sin. And that's what's going on here. She longs. That's what Eve did in the garden. She saw the fruit was pleasing to the eye and good for food. So she took it and she ate it. She allowed that question to dwell in the mind because of her longing. Did God really say? Look at verse 3. So after Abraham had lived uh, 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. Who thought that was a good idea? And yet I think what for Abraham and Sarah here, they feel justified in what they're doing. They've been longing for a long time. They've been thinking about it. They now feel this might be the right option. And sin does that. It has a way of justifying itself. They've been waiting for a long time. And maybe they were aware that other people, other people did this. This was a common practice. These kind of surrogate pregnancies. And, and so they, 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 they reason, well, maybe this is what God wants. And, and they, 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 in their own mind, they, they, there's a logic that, that to the, the, the sin that they want to engage in. They have a human solution to God's problem. We're just helping God along here. It's what everybody else does. Sarah thinks, I'm getting old. I need to get started if this is going to happen. You, you see how a good longing can become a seedbed for sin. Very obvious application for this group, thinking of the email that was received at the beginning. Marriage is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. 
And yet sometimes that unhealthy obsession and desire, when it goes unrealized, can actually be a dangerous thing in an unguarded heart. I want you to see marriage is good, it's special, it's wonderful. And yet Satan is so devious in his tactics. And he can take something that is good and use the hunger for it as a fuel to foster bad choices and bad actions on the part of the individual. Be very, very careful with the things that you long most for. But primarily what I want you to see in the sin of Abraham and Sarai is that sin most often hurts other people. You remember what the second greatest commandment is? To love your neighbor as yourself. Sin most often leaves victims. And that's what we see here in chapter 16. Uh, Sarai has a real pain in her heart, a longing. And Abraham is, he just wants a happy wife at one level. But, and both of them, they continue in the narrative. It's Hagar that bears the brunt of this. It's Hagar who most suffers in all of this. Imagine those Israelites again on the plains of Moab hearing about how cruel their forefather and foremother were to this Egyptian slave girl. And the text wants us to see that what this is, is sin. Don't try and justify it in your head. It's sin. Now look at the wording there at the end of verse 2. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. That's meant to remind us of something that came earlier in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 verse 17. And to, Abra- or to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. There's a deliberate pattern there, a a parallel that's meant to be seen. Look at chapter 16 and verse 3. It says, So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. Now you listen to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. It's the same type of language that is being pulled into Genesis chapter 16, because we're meant to see the actions of uh, Abraham and the actions of Sarai as fall-like actions. They are misbehaving here. They are behaving like sinners here. They are the covenant people of God. They've received the covenant, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15 already. And yet here they, they're, they're acting like the rest of the broken world around them. Sin is so ugly, it it does that. It it continues to to creep in and to to hurt and to to destroy even after we come to follow the Lord. I want to read a little quote from Folly of Vision, and it's this. It's about sin. 
O Lord, my every sense, member, faculty, affection is a snare to me. I can scarce open my eyes, but I envy those above me or despise those below. If I behold beauty, it is a bait to lust. Or see deformity, it stirs up loathing and disdain. Am I comely? What fuel for pride. Am I deformed? What an occasion for repining. Am I gifted? I lust after applause. Am I unlearned? I despise what I have not. Am I inferior? How much I grudge others' preeminence. You see the point, whatever station, whatever difficulty we have in life, the devil has a way of, of taking and emphasizing and stressing and twisting it so it becomes fuel for sin. It warps. And that wobbling focus uh, of, on God, when we, we, we say we follow him, but we begin to wobble and we begin to focus on what we don't have and what we long for instead, uh, that, 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 that pull into sin will always lead to a blatant disregard to fellow men. It forms that me and them type of mindset. Sure, what does she matter? She's just. She's just your Egyptian slave girl. When people talk lowly of others, it's a sign that there's something broken in their heart. That's a, that's a warning sign. If you can talk in a demeaning way, in a dismissive way, in a reproachful way about somebody else, there's something wrong with you that needs to be addressed. What about you tonight? I'm assuming most of the people in this room, you're part of the people of God. You're a Christian. You love him. You say. How are the relationships around you affected by you? Do you have a catalog of broken people that have been run over in your path. And you're justified in it thinking, well, they deserved it. They, they, they were this, they were that. That's a warning sign. Well, when sin is exposed, and especially the sin of how we treat others, what are we to do with it? Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. When we see sin in our heart, and I hope you do see sin in your heart, I hope you become sensitive to it. When we see it, we mourn and we grieve and we cry out to God for mercy. For in him there is forgiveness. We talked about the mistreatment of Hagar but now I want us to think secondly about what Genesis 16, those people of God listening to it and the plains of Moab, what this story of Hagar would have said to them about the God of all people. The God of all people. 
Remember, they were Israelites. And the last person they expected to hear being talked about was an Egyptian. And yet, she's the main event here. A lady of no social standing. A lady who came from the very nation that mistreated them. And yet, she has one of the most, and it is the most personal encounters with God in all of Scripture. This is one of the most intimate interactions with God that you will ever find through the pages of Scripture. It's the first time we read of that character that will appear several times through the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the angel of Yahweh. This this great one that appears, this angel of Yahweh, the name appears four times in verses 7 to 11. And look at verse 13 especially. Look at, at what Hagar says after the interaction. So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. The angel of Yahweh was God. It was God. This was an interaction that Hagar has with, 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 with God embodied. The angel of the Lord engaging with her. And in verse 7, we're told he comes and he finds her not in Israel, but on the road to Shur. She's going on the journey on the way back to Egypt. She's trying to get away. She just wants to get home. She wants to get away from the violence. She wants to get away from the brokenness. She wants to get away from the misery. And yet someone comes, well, not someone, the one comes and meets with her there. Look at the wording at the beginning of verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord found her. He seeks her out. He goes in search for Hagar. And he does. He, He draws alongside this girl that everybody else misses. Look look at verse 8. And he said, what's the first word in all of Scripture that the angel of the Lord issues? Do you see it? What's the first word that the angel of the Lord speaks? Hagar. He uses her name. The name Hagar is never used in direct speech by Abraham or Sarah to this point. The narrator tells us we're talking about Hagar, but Sarah never uses her name. She's my slave girl, my maidservant. Uh, To Abraham, it's yours, your maidservant. But there is somebody who uses her name. And it's God himself. He knows her. He, he, he understands her. He uses that name. Remember the name so often in, in Scripture rev- speaks of the person, the, their identity, their totality, their character. And here God knows this girl and doesn't just go searching for her. He speaks to her and, and dignifies her by being the first to use her name. 
first words of the angel of the Lord. She's demeaned and missed by the covenant people. And yet God talks to her. Do you know, this is the only story, not just in the Bible, in the, in the whole of Near Eastern ancient literature, where you read a story about a woman directly engaging with deity and talking this way. This ancient book of Genesis is, is something outside of its time. God speaks to this lady, not just a lady, but a, a slave, one of the lower, on the lowest rungs in all of society. And so the first people listening to this story, they, they heard the, that the God who later would hear their cry in Egypt and would act before even he got there, he had already heard the cry of an Egyptian slave and already had acted. And this is our God, whether it be the Israelites in chapter 2 of Exodus, whether it be Hagar here in Genesis chapter 16, he promised both of them freedom from their slavery and he acted. God's not one type of person for the Israelite and another for the Egyptian. He's not one type of person for the man and another for the lady. He's not one type of person for uh, uh, the one with a, a free, well-qualified job and one who's on the lowest rungs of society, uh, another type of person. God is the same. The Bible says, for God so loved the And, and all the way through Scripture, his ambitions, even in the Old Testament, go beyond Israel. He's a God of the nations. It's amazing, isn't it? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Abraham was told that through his descendants, Abraham would become a blessing to the, the nations. And what does Abraham do with that? He goes home, I'm sure, happy about that promise. And then he goes and he, he mistreats this girl in his home from the nations. But not God. And it's God who's going to bring the promise fulfillment. And it's God who's going to do. And here we see that God is intimately engaged with, with, with the person whose name everybody else, it seems, has forgotten. And so the last thing I want us to notice here is, is what in particular this says about hurting and broken people. And to touch, and I think that's all we'll do, touch on the hope that is presented here for hurting people. Look at verse 9. This is one of the hardest verses to read in this whole story. The angel of Yahweh said to her, Return. To your mistress and submit to her. That's a hard calling, isn't it? Uh, she, she, most likely she would have died on the road to Egypt. A, a lady by herself, pregnant, she was not going to be able to make that journey. God caught her at sure because if she had gone any further, she most likely would have died. She's not, she's not taking an easy way out here. This was a, a suicide mission she'd gone on. So desperate was she to get away. 
And it gives you a hint of how miserable life was back with Abraham and Sarai. And yet God says, go back. Basically, allow yourself to be afflicted, Hagar. Go back to that awful situation. Now, I feel pastorally awkward right now. Because that's not the advice I would give to you if you came and talked to me. I'm pretty sure it's not the advice Austin would give to you if you sat down with him and talked and revealed that you are in an abusive relationship or you're in a place where you're vulnerable and being taken advantage of or being attacked or hurt in any way. And in fact, if you are in that type of a, a relationship or environment, please And I know it's hard, but please reach out and and seek help. That isn't normal. And it's certainly not right. And, And you need help. And you need support. One of the most painful moments pastorally for me has been to watch people who, they're not in my church anymore. I knew them actually from here a long time ago. Their marriage is is awful because he is awful. And and it's so hard to watch that that relationship from the sidelines. It's awful to see people in those types of situations. And I want to encourage you, if that is you, please do talk. And, And yet in this unique moment, God does something unique. In his perfect plan, he says, go back. Go back. Well, how could she do that? How could this girl, who's running away on her suicide mission, how could she go back to that environment? Well, she does, and she does for two reasons. And and the first one is this, the sweetness of meeting with God. The sweetness of meeting with God is going to sustain her. It's why she talks in verse 13. Did you see? It's such a good verse. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God of seeing. She had a God she knew now who saw her. Everyone missed me. They didn't even use my name. But God followed me all the way to sure to find me. He knows all about me, all about the pain, all about the difficulty, all of the environment. I have a God who sees, she says. In fact, she goes further. She also has a God who hears. We've talked, haven't we, about how he hears our cries. Look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Now, I don't know about your Bible, but there's a wee tiny number beside the word Ishmael. And when I go down to the little bottom, it tells me Ishmael means God hears. And in fact, verse 11 says the same thing. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Not only did God see her, God heard her. And he heard her cry. Yeah. When you have children, if that comes, you give them a name. And what you like to do as a parent in that naming process is practice it. 
So we have a boy called Ian. You try and say it tenderly, because there'll be times in parenting where you say it tenderly, Ian. Ian, come here. Ian. And then you practice shouting it. Ian! Get over here now! Ian! Because you'll have to use it in both occurrences. And parents use the name all the time. Because you have to use their name all the time. Every time Hagar used the name of her son, and she used it all the time, she was reminded she had a God who hears. God hears. God hears! God hears! (laughs) And in the difficulty, whenever Ishmael's messing about with Sarah, and she's losing it. And Hagar has to summon him. Israel! She's being reminded, though Sarah may lose it in a moment with her, she is a God who hears. She is a God who sees. She is a God who hears. And she's reminded throughout of the sweet fellowship, the sweet moment she had with God. A God who sees me. A God who hears me. Uh, Her miserable situation that she's going back to, it hasn't changed, but she has a God who sees and a God who hears, and that changes everything about that situation. Secondly, though, she also is given by God promises to hold on to, and I think this is why God sends her back. She's given promises to go back and hold on to. And she's a long-term faith in the promises that God will keep her going. And and God will help in the present circumstance. Look at verse 12. It's not the most cuddly of promises. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, an insight into parenthood. That's not what you want written in a school report. That's <laughs> it's not like if some. Marilee was very good whenever we had uh, our children in LA. She came to visit in the hospital. Now imagine if Marilee came in and she picked up Ian, looked at him for the first time, and said, Look, "He'll be a wild donkey of a man." <laughs> Like, what do you do with that? (laughs) But what I want you to see is in verse 13, that's whenever Hagar, the first that comes immediately after, issues her big, warm, big God statement. I have a God who sees. She's not offended. In fact, she's, she's touched and encouraged by what is said here. And so we need to be careful because I think we're misunderstanding something. Wild donkeys. She, she's in the wilderness, remember, trying to get away. The, 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 one of the few animals she could see with her eyes are wild donkeys. And you know what wild donkeys aren't? Tame donkeys. Owned donkeys. Kept donkeys. They don't belong to anybody. And what this slave is being told Hagar, your son's not going to be a slave. He's going to be free. He's going to be able to go where he wants to go. If he wants to go to Shur, to Egypt, or wherever, he can go there. 
Uh, Those statements that his hand will be against everyone, that there is probably an idea of violence at some level there, definitely. But primarily it's that nobody's going to have an abusive hand over him. He's he's not going to be under somebody's thumb, Hagar. You need to know, mum, who is worried about your child. He's not going to grow up in slavery the way you've grown up in slavery. Your boy's going to be free. And that's why she, she turns with such love and such affection to her God who sees. She's given these promises that she can hold on to as she goes back and she can keep holding on to no matter how hard it will be when she goes back. Her faith that she knows a God, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that promise-making, promise-keeping God, she knows him. In fact, not only does she know him, he sees her, he hears her, and he gives her these promises, and she trusts that he'll keep every promise that he has given. Now, faith isn't an easy thing. One commentator says, faith is not easy. It calls for persistence, which is against the common sense. It calls for believing in a gift from God, which none of the present day circumstances can substantiate. Go home, Hagar. It'll all be okay. She's going home. It's not going to be okay. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. She's going to be shouted at. She's going to get abused. And and it happens because in a few chapters time, she has to run away again. This isn't an easy existence, but she has the faith to believe that what God said he would do, he would do. Faith is is hope in things unseen, things yet to be. Not everything when you become a Christian is fixed in this life. Jesus was one familiar with suffering and he he expects us to follow him. He calls his people, if you follow him, to be ready to take up your cross in that following. And yet, he promises what's to come. As he promised that thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. And it's that faith in what will come in the end, what he has promised he will deliver in the end that, that, that allows us to cross carry and to put up with the broken pain and misery that sin in this world brings and smashes against us. Hagar is such a broken and mistreated character. And yet at this moment, as she's about to go back, there's like a resolve about her. She's got hard, steely eyes, but there's a sparkle in them too. Because she has hope that God sees, that God hears her, and that God will keep every promise he has given to her. It's that that this sufferer holds on to. One commentator says, the realization that God sees my plight and is in control is the antidote despair. Again, not knowing everybody in this room and the situations you're coming from, maybe in a room this size, there's bound to be people who are coming from broken environments, broken situations. God doesn't take away those broken situations. But, But God, the God who sees, 
the God who hears and the God who has promises regarding the future for all who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. He, he, he is one here who, who doesn't always change and remove the painful situation you're in, but, but he's able to carry the individual through it. I just find this chapter in particular one of the most revealing about God. And it's such an unlikely character. But that's God. He, he's a God who cares for unlikely characters. He's so beautiful in this particular passage. He goes to the very person everybody else forgot about. And nobody really seemed to care about. Hagar's story is really a story where God is the main character. George Whitfield was a great evangelist. I'm sure Steve Lawson will tell you about him someday. When he died, there was a lady who kind of gave a quote to the paper that said, you know, George Whitfield was so cheerful. So so warm and big in his personality, it almost made me want to become a Christian. Now, there's a lot weird about that statement. <laughs> but, but, but she said there's something so compelling about Whitfield's character that made the message he brought compelling and interesting. Well, there is nobody more compelling in chapter 16 than God. You, you, you don't find him compelling. A God who sees the one everybody else misses. A God who hears cries from people. A God who gives a promise that speaks to the very aspiration of this concerned pregnant lady. What a God. Are you not compelled tonight to want to know him for yourself? Some, I think, dismiss Hagar because she is the mother of the Arab nations. God saw her. God loved her. God heard her. The angel of the Lord, the first word he speaks in Scripture is her name. And God gave her glorious promises to hold on to that would carry her through a cruel world full of human brokenness and mistreatment. Do you know Hagar's God tonight? We live in a broken world and if you have not already, you will be hurt by the sinful actions of your fellow men and your fellow women. People who you thought should and would care for you will let you down. And yet there is a God who the Bible says is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a God who says we can pray to him and cast our cares upon him, knowing that he indeed cares for you. You know Hagar's God is your God, the God who sees you tonight. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the intimacy of your relationship with Hagar that is revealed here. 
We thank you, Lord, that people who everybody else misses are people who you, Lord, see and hear. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was one who grew up in obscurity. He was one who uh, experienced the the brokenness and the hurt and the turmoil of uh, sinful men and women in this world. And yet we thank you, Lord, that he, he went to the cross and he died so that we could be forgiven and we could be known by you. We thank you for the joy, Lord, of all who are trusting in Christ tonight, that they know that these truths are true of them, that they have a God who sees them, a God who hears their cries, and a God whose promises are sure and steadfast and will always come to pass. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised uh, salvation, that you have promised forgiveness, that you have promised uh, a paradise where we will get to be with Jesus Christ forever. For all who are trusting in him. Lord, we do pray especially tonight for those who maybe even something said has hit a nerve. And and they are coming from homes or environments or particular situations where they themselves are feeling something of the ugliness of sin in this world. Lord, help them to come and to seek help and to seek support. But most importantly, Lord, we pray and, and ask that you would Help them to come to know you and to find their hope in you, the God who sees, who hears, and who gives us promises to hold on to. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.